0: Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and contributor at places like The Dispatch, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it would be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading those reviews. In this week's show... We're going to talk about the 2020 general election between Donald Trump and Joe Biden and go through all the latest numbers and factors playing into the race. I was looking around at what I'd covered recently, and I realized that I had not covered the 2020 election in that much depth. Recently. And in the segment after that, we're going to talk through the latest numbers on the coronavirus and how the country has taken a turn for the worst. And you can look through all the numbers at this point and come to that conclusion. And then finally, we'll wrap up with the light item segment. And I'm going to talk about how there's a new boon for the Second Amendment as a result of COVID 19. But first, I have a quick hit that I wanted to talk about this week. I wanted to talk first about how ESPN finally got one right when it came to politics. So it's been forever. If you've been following ESPN and all the things they've done in the last five to eight years, it's, it's been very rare for them to have gotten something right. But they finally did. Their top NBA reporter, Adrian Wojnarowski, was suspended for a period for a short period of time after sending an email to Republican Senator Josh Hawley out of Missouri that just said "f you." And of course, all of that was spelled out. Hawley had sent a letter to NBA Commissioner uh Adam Silver asking why players couldn't be more expressive with their jerseys and asking why the league was preventing statements on jerseys and other things that would support it the people in Hong Kong and allow them would have allowed them to say things about the minority group in China the Muslim minority group in China the Uyghurs. The NBA is allowing players right now as they are playing in this bubble to put special messages on the backs of their jerseys. The thing about that is I'm largely fine with that but the the weird problem with it is that they all messages have to be pre-approved and the league player union and the league got together and they came up with pre-approved phrases and only those phrases can be used. And most of them are innocuous and don't mean that much but conspicuously absent were anything since you know the league went through it at the beginning of the year, no player could say anything in support of Hong Kong. You couldn't say anything about anything outside the key issues that are happening right now. So naturally, Josh Hawley decided to send a letter as a U.S. senator asking why players couldn't be more expressive or why the league wasn't doing more to let people say things about China. Adrian Wojnarowski is the top reporter on the NBA at on the NBA at ESPN he's really probably the top NBA reporter period and that was true before he went to ESPN. So in a way, just given how tied in he is, it makes him both sort of the face of NBA coverage for the ESPN and also just it, he may, he comes across as a mouthpiece for the NBA itself. So he fits sort of these two things here and when he sent that email He sent it using his ESPN email address. So it had the authority of not just him saying it, but also looking officially sanctioned by ESPN and by extension, the Disney company and ABC. So he's been suspended for doing that. Now, most people have decried the suspension. In fact, you can go on social media and see a free Woj hashtag campaign going around And that's all fine and dandy, but I disagree with everyone who's saying that ESPN got this wrong and they were too heavy-handed. I actually think they got this right. A brief suspension here drives the point home that you can't do what he did with a company email. You just can't. This is true of any industry. This is not true about, this is not cancel culture, or this is, and this is not anything related to that. You can't use your company email to send a personal political message like that. It's not that him sending the message was wrong. It's that he used company property to do that with his ESPN email address. And if he'd done it with his personal email address, you know, maybe this just deserved either talking to or reprimand at most. I mean, it really wouldn't be that big of a deal in that case. But when you use your official company email to do that, you force ESPN's hand here to do something. Because if they don't, it's going to mean that other people are going to use their official company email to do other things like this, and it's going to keep the company in hot water. So... As a company, you have to enforce the line here just to keep out of that kind of fray. And I know that ESPN doesn't want to do that. They've walked away from those kinds of political statements, and rightly so. They were bad when it came to being a woke sports company. So they did the right thing here where they just issued a short suspension and then he'll be back and everything will be fine. He also issued an apology and said he was reaching out to Josh Hawley, which is also fine. Of course Hawley is also trying to pump this up and making it, make it bigger to increase his platform as a senator and that's, you know, that's gross all in its own point. But in any event, I think ESPN actually got it right here for the first time in a long time. They enforced their company's line. It's not a cancel culture thing. The people who are saying that Woe should be fired for what he said here, they are the real cancel culture. And that's the type of cancel culture people you'll find on the right. And so they got it right here. They, they split the middle here. It's just going to be a short suspension, or at least it should be. And from there, everyone can move on. So, it's not a fireball offense it's It's more than just you know a reprimand. They did have to do something along the lines here, and when you use your company email to do something like that, as any corporate employee knows, you're going to get in trouble if it's found out so this is a good job by ESPN They enforce their company line. he can say or do whatever he wants in his private time. That's all right, but ESPN actually got something right which is refreshing for a change to see. So that brings us to the 2020 horse race, the general election update that I wanted to do since we haven't really done one of those in a while. And what I wanted to do is walk through the dynamics of the 2020 election, where we are, what's happening in the race, because in less than two weeks, we're going to be 100 days away from the general election. I'm recording on Sunday night, and I went and checked the counter, and it says that we have 114 days left right now to the November election, which is 16 weeks, 16.2 weeks. So, as of right now, Donald Trump would lose the election if it were held today. There's no question about that point. If we held the election right now, if November was right now, he would lose and it would be a landslide loss for Republicans. So to walk through that, we're going to walk through some. One of my favorite things to do is just walk through the top line numbers. I do this on the coronavirus. I do this in elections. You, I do this when, even, you know, when I write my things about hurricane season and things like that. There are some key things that you look at. Now, not all the political fundamentals are at play here. One of the key things I like using and informing my opinion of what's going to happen in a race is the 538 model by Nate Silver. That's not really out yet; they just have all their basic averages of things. And when you're just averaging polls, I prefer to use Real Clear Politics. Nate Silver likes to weight his polls when it comes to averaging them, which is fine. I like it. You know, it's it's great to look at that if you're trying to figure out some of the house effect for some of these pollsters, but If you just wanted to look at polls straight up and figure out a basic average, real clear politics is the standard in that arena. So, starting out, the first key number that you want to look at is Trump's approval rating. The better, generally speaking, the better a president's approval rating when you're going into an election, the better off you would expect them to perform in the election. So, if you're under 50% On your approval rating, it tends to mean you're going to struggle in a general election, depending on how far away and how far under 50% you are. And of course, for Donald Trump, he's been under 50% approval rating since he's been in office for the entire time. So as of right now, he sits at one of his near all time lows. It's not his all-time worst, but it is pretty low. He sits at 41.6 approval and 56.2 disapproval. So there's a very wide range there, nearly 15-point range there of approval, disapproval. So he is clearly underwater right now. And it's the worst that he's had since just straight up. It's the worst point he's been here since January of 2019, which, at that point, we are talking about his approval rating post-Kavanaugh hearings. And then after that, you'd have to go all the way back to December 2017, when his support had collapsed to 37%. So, right now, it is bad for his approval rating. But even with that, it's not far from really where he needs to be. Again, his approval rating right now is at 41.6. And really all he really needs to get to to be competitive in all these states is 45%. So that's that's just 3.4% away from where he is in the real clear politics average. So even though it's bad right now for him, he's not far from where he needs to be because these are national averages. That's what you have to remember about all these numbers that you hear on a national level. It's everyone in the United States, and the national polls tend to get a little skewed towards the heavier population states. So states like California, New York, and some of these others with major major metropolitan areas, they can skew the national poll averages towards Democrats a little bit, especially with someone as polarizing as Donald Trump. If you go back and you look at the impeachment, his support nationally, there is always a pretty strong support for impeaching Trump on a national level level. But then when you drilled down and got into some of these states, especially the swing states, there was actually a majority of people who disapproved of impeaching Trump. So that sort of tells you there was a gap between the national numbers and what was happening in some of these key swing states. Trump always had more support in these swing states than he did on the national level. So if you get to around 45 percent on a national level, it means that Trump is probably doing somewhere between two to five percent better in the swing states. More than likely, that was what my that was my rule of thumb when I was looking at impeachment numbers. When I was looking at states like Wisconsin or Michigan or Pennsylvania, Trump was generally running ahead of those states. And I think you can sort of do the same thing. This is just me guesstimating, but I think you can do the same thing with his approval rating if he can get it somewhere closer to 45%. The best he's really done in the longest is hitting closer to 46%. I don't know how likely that is. His historical norm in the in the approval ratings category is around 42%. So it's not asking a ton for him to move that up. But he has shot himself in the foot a lot here. And specifically, his support on this collapsed on May 1st. So that's right about when you're talking about reopening taking place. That was when people started looking at the approval and started disapproving of his performance overall. So it's not the entirety of the coronavirus, and it started happening before the riots, but both of those together, reopening and the numbers going up now, and the riots have clearly hurt his approval rating overall. So that's his approval rating. Well, you want he wants to get back Trump needs to get to about the forty-five percent mark. And you'll notice here on the approval rating, I'm ignoring Biden because when it comes to Trump's approval rating, it doesn't really matter what Biden's approval rating is. It matters more what your the incumbent's approval rating is going into the election. So that brings us to the second important metric here, which is right track, wrong track. So this question just asks people, do you think the country is on the right path, or is headed in the right direction, or do you think the country needs a change of direction? So it's it's combining all those different ways of saying, are we on the right track, or are we on the wrong track? And here, there's been a very decisive shift in one direction, and that is, everybody of every party thinks we're on the wrong track. In fact, right now, The averages say only 24.1% of people say that we're on the right track. So one out of four people only thinks that. The rest do not think that at all, or they're undecided, and that is not a good place to be. This is the single worst mark going back to July 24th, 2016. There's been a general low mark for Trump where most people, you know, he's never had a decisive you know, majority who thought we are on the right track. But generally, Republicans have thought we're on the right track and a good sizable portion of independents have thought we're on the right track during this and during most of his presidency. So that has kept the overall number up, even though almost no Democrats believe we're on the right track. So what's happened here is that when people are asked this question, both Republicans and independents now are agreeing in almost the same low number range as democrats as all agreeing that we're not on the right track and that's that's the lowest point of his presidency and you'd have to go back to the 2016 election to find people saying this about america so if americans are voting in an election that they believe that things are headed on the wrong track that's always bad news for an incumbent and if you go back because, you know, generally, if you think we're on the wrong track, you're going to vote for the person who says, okay, I'm going to offer a different direction here. We're going to go this way. So that may, that's what makes Biden more appealing here, just because he's saying we're going to take a return to normalcy, which is in the opposite direction of Trump. Now, whether or not you believe that or not, that's the pitch. And if everybody thinks we're going in the wrong direction, they're going to take the new person more than likely. If you look at these things, at these numbers here, they started plummeting not in May, but in March. So, right track wrong track reflects the mood of the country almost explicitly along lines of the coronavirus. And while I'm sure the riots are playing something of a role here now in keeping things low, the reality is is that people are reacting On this question, it seems more likely on the coronavirus and the performance of the government in responding to and preventing the spread of the coronavirus. So you have sort of two data points here. There's March, and then there's May on the other, showing that people do not like these two events and how Trump is dealing with these two events, and they they are reflecting poorly on him. So you have approval rating, you have right track, wrong track. So those are sort of your 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 more esoteric uh, poll questions. And then you just get right down to the direct question of, if the election were held today, are you voting for Donald Trump or Joe Biden? And nationally, in the Real Clear Politics average, Biden leads right now by nine points, which is a very decisive lead. And that lead has opened up since the close the closest the polls were were back in February before Biden had even taken the lead in the primaries, and at that point, Biden held a slim four point three four point three point lead over Trump, which is it's for most polls if you've got a five point margin of error. That's within the margin of error, but if you've got like a two or three point, it's just outside. But basically, it tells you it's a close election nationally, and if it's that close nationally, it's also going to be closer within the battleground states. So that was the the high point between the two of them. Then the previous high point, you'd have to go to, it looks like, May 18th. And Biden's, I mean, in and since May 18th, or I take that back, May 18th is the next high point for Trump. So February was the first high point between the two of them. And then the next one was May. It's not quite as close as it was in February. But ever since May 18th, the the gulf between Biden and Trump has widened up to this nine point lead. Now, all that said, Trump has not fallen below 40 percent support against Biden in these polls, in these averages. So it shows sort of a baseline, as it's shown for throughout the entirety of his presidency of that he has, where he's largely going to stick at around 40%. And it's about how much he can work up above that. And usually he can hold around that 42%. So this is reflected right now, this 40% mark where he's very low, it's reflecting his low approval ratings. And what's preventing him from gaining any more altitude against Biden is that most people think that we're on the wrong track. So you sort of mix all these two together and you get sort of the fundamentals of this race. You get a general mood. Normally in these elections, you'd be looking also at the economy and other you know, fundamentals like that. But right now you have to take these poll numbers and then you have to combine them with where you think we're going to go with the coronavirus and what's going to happen with these protests and these riots over time. And I get that the protests have died down somewhat, but there's still stories coming out of statues being defaced and rioting and other things of that nature. So there's still a lot of pent-up anger, and those two stories are acting as a one-two punch, a very bad combo for Donald Trump trying to rewin election here he he's a cl- very clear underdog right now as we're heading into november almost at the 100 day mark so he's got to figure out not just how to navigate these two major stories but also navigate more than likely other major stories that are going to come along the line one of the things that's going to end up happening, inevitably, is hurricane season. You're going to see other major disasters, natural disasters happen. I went back and looked at 2016, and Hurricane Matthew happened to run through Haiti at that point, and it was a massive disaster because it hit went through there as a Category 5. Now, we've had, over the past two or three years, a, a more of an active hurricane season where you've had some of these major hurricanes tip over and hit Cat 4, Cat 5 status and get close to hitting the United States. So you have to start taking some of these natural disasters into play when you are planning through the, you know, the late summer Early fall period because that's when a lot of that starts heating up. In two thousand and twelve, a lot of people think that Hurricane Sandy ended up aiding Barack Obama against Mitt Romney because it allowed him to look more presidential. You had the infamous hug between New Jersey governor just random blank. Oh, Chris Christie and Barack Obama and Chris Christie praising Obama for our, the the support that he gave in helping get New Jersey back on its feet. So these things always tend to happen. You have these 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 scenarios pop up which shift how the nation looks at it. And a lot of the key the key fundamentals that you would depend upon to tell you what's going to happen in 2020 are not as reliable. So we don't have the economy in play because the economy is linked to whatever's going to happen with the virus. They are, those two concepts are inextricably linked right now. So there's a lot of variables at play, which brings me to the last point here of where are we headed? Because we're in an unusual situation here. There have been, we're in mid-July now, and there have been no conventions held by either party by either the Republicans or the Democrats. And usually what happens is that you hit these convention periods of time, and one of the candidates gets a boost. So in 2008, coming out of the conventions, you had Sarah Palin and everything. McCain actually took a lead over Barack Obama in September. He actually showed a lead, and what ended up sinking him, just a precipitous sink for McCain, was two things. One, the the economy just went into a tailspin the uh, the The worst of the two thousand and eight recession was hitting, and people panicked, so that sunk McCain because he was tied to Bush at that point and then Sarah Palin just lost her mind and said a slew of things which sunk the rest of the McCain campaign so normally, when you have a convention, the candidates get a boost. We don't know if that's going to happen here primarily just because we don't we haven't had one, and second, we don't know if they're going to be a live convention. Or it's going to be virtual. And if you have a virtual convention, I would just seem to think you don't get as much of a boost of it coming out. So whatever the conventions are, they're not going to change anything if they end up being virtual events. Now, I know Donald Trump is planning on them being live events. So maybe it helps him have more of a boost. The other interesting thing here about the conventions is that they're happening later in the summer this year. Normally, they happen in mid to late July. And with the coronavirus, they're all happening a month later. So both Democrats and Republicans are holding their conventions in late August. So for Democrats, they're up first. They're August 17th through the 20th. And Republicans follow the next week on August the 24th through the 27th. So you have to think that that late push here is going to really put a crunch a time crunch on these campaigns because it's going to shrink the amount of time that people are going to be focused on the presidential election. Usually, people don't start paying attention until after the conventions, and that's you know more politically adapted people. And then after that, you get the more general audience that begins tuning in around September when the debates start popping up, and you're getting closer and closer to November. And This is going to put a crunch on that because you are effectively cutting a month here out of a post-convention world and jumping right into September. So the time crunch on the election is going to get really tight because you're cutting out that month that campaigns normally have to sort of feel out their campaigns before things get intense in September. And there's going to be none of that this year. You're going to jump immediately from conventions into the heat of the race, and that means the likelihood of mistakes from these campaigns is going to go up because they're not going to have the time margins of error that they normally have. So that's just dealing with conventions and the sort of the new unique time play that's involved here. The second thing here is that we don't know where the virus is going to head, and we're going to talk about this in this next segment, but cases, hospitalizations, and deaths are all going up. And that's just going to impact Trump. That's going to impact how people view Trump. It's going to impact how they view how the campaigns move going forward. And, and you know, it could have this weird impact because you've got these both old candidates going around and they can't risk getting the virus. And if one of them gets it, that's going to impact the race, too. So we don't know how the virus is going to play with this election overall. So we don't know we just we don't know where that's going to go. We don't know how the riots are going to go. The the cultural power of the riots is definitely dwindling, but the statues as I said are still being defaced and people are still calling for defunding the police. So there's there's a lot of situations here and it just wouldn't take enough, I mean it wouldn't take much to light it all up. This is all tinder. And in an election season if you have tinder that's available to be lit up real easily, and what an election does is it dries all that tinder up and makes it really easy to light something up if you're thinking in fire terms. So there's all these questions of things that could impact just how things happen. And, and among those, most notably, we've referenced them a few times, are the debates. Do we even have debates this year? There have been there have been articles put out from both people uh, affiliated with Trump and Biden, both suggesting that debates are not a good idea for a variety of reasons. Uh, The main ones for Biden is that he doesn't need them. And so he's at this point saying, well, you know, it would be better if we just didn't have them overall. So it's going to be interesting because politically, the political will to have the debates may not be here this year. And second, with the coronavirus it might make sense not to keep everybody in the same room. And at that point, do you have sort of this quasi Zoom-like debate? Because that that sort of that that type of environment, I think, actually hurts Trump because he's he's a performer. He requires an audience and and things like that to perform. And if you strip all that away, he doesn't look as good. And for Biden, he's looked good in basically a handful of debates because he generally it just starts going off the rails. Jonah Goldberg likes to likes to joke around that that Biden is always you know 2 or 3 sentences away from just all of a sudden screaming get these get these squirrels out of my hair. So that's always what you're risking when you get Joe Biden out there in front of a microphone. You do not know what he's going to say after the third or fourth sentence. So those are some of the big questions and perhaps the biggest because it comes back to the virus, is how is it going to affect turnout? How are people going to turn out if they're afraid of this virus? We've seen some state elections, but that was still early on in this process. How will the coronavirus impact that? Because we're going to have this virus impacting everything until we get a vaccine that is widely available to everyone. So is that going to mean we're going to have voting that's up or down? Trump is currently working off the thought process that lower turnout helps him. He's working off the you know the old idea that the GOP and lower turnout go together and whenever there's lower turnout Republicans always do better overall. Now I'm just going to say up front there's no proof that that's actually true. I've read multiple studies on this point and there's no point there there's just no proof that lower turnout helps either party or that higher turnout helps Democrats. 2016 had high turnout, historically speaking, for most elections, and Republicans won. So I don't know how this is going to help one way or another, but Trump was working towards a lower turnout election. I don't know that he's actually going to get that, just because he tends to energize voters himself. So those are all the variables that go into this horse race that we don't know. There's going to be a lot that's going to happen. As I said, we're going to eventually hit August when the conventions are going to happen, and all of a sudden we're going to be in September talking about debates, and everyone's going to be tuning in. So the election is going to really get crunched here, and it's going to be tighter in a way that's not been felt before in American politics. We've not had a shortened election like this in a while. So keep an eye on how that interplays with everything overall. When we get back from the break, we will talk through the latest on the coronavirus. All right. So the latest numbers on the coronavirus, if you do every week, we're going to start with the overall number of tests. And this week, we wrapped up crossing the 40 million test mark, hitting 40.3 million tests. That means we added 4.67 million tests over this past week alone. So there's a lot happening on the testing front. Case numbers continue to go up. The number that I'm focusing on, though, are hospitalizations. As I've explained a number of times to both people here in Tennessee and others, hospitalizations are sort of like your, your back your back wall here that help you catch things that are happening, even if you don't know why testing is going up overall and testing for this past week went up from 39,000 to over 52.5 thousand tests so closing in on 53,000 and that added 13.8 thousand people to the hospitalization rolls over this past week that was good <clears throat> excuse me that was good for 35.7% increase in one week. The previous week, the hospitalization numbers went up as well, but they only went up 19%. And so that was an increase from around 32,000 to 38,000. So around 6,000 people were added to hospitalization rolls. And we doubled that, more than doubled that over this past week. However, there is a caveat to this. Florida started reporting their current hospitalizations over this past week and all their hospitalization numbers got dumped in at once. So it looks like there is this massive surge, but really it was just Florida reporting everything at once. So if if those numbers, you know, if they are, if they are heading higher, we don't know don't know the real speed yet just because you would have to separate sort of florida out from everything that we've seen so far. So the actual increase isn't likely doubling. It's it's much lower than that, but but it does tell us what give us a better picture overall of what the overall number of hospitalizations are across the country. And generally speaking, the more hospitalizations you have, the more deaths you are likely to have or can have just because you have more candidates who are capable of dying from the virus overall, because typically the progression is you have people who, you know, they get sick, they get tested, they're tested as positive. If they get real sick, they end up in the hospital. And from there, they end up dying from it. That is your typical progression. Now, we know this isn't true for everyone because there was a study in Houston, Texas, where some reporters found that there were excess deaths above this, where people were dying in their homes for either from the coronavirus, and we didn't know about it, or they were dying for other reasons, like, say, a heart attack, and they weren't calling 911 because they were afraid to go to the hospital. So there are more deaths happening here. We just don't have a good way of tracking it. That's why we're not going to ever get a clean idea of how many people both had the virus you know, were hospitalized by it and also got sick and also died by it until well after this, until we're able to look at all of the numbers overall. Right now, we're just sort of filling our way and trying to figure out what's happening. And this is our best guess at what's happening right now with all of those variables at play. Now, this means that the last good day of statistics that we had on deaths was the day after July 4th, so that'd be July 5th. That was the last good day when we had 209 new deaths come in because of the coronavirus. And deaths had trended down within a range of like two to 500 a day before that. And then last week we saw a very large jump where you saw everything from 400 to 922, I believe the the top number was, which is bringing the seven-day average up, showing that what we're seeing here as you're as you're seeing all these states bring roll everything out is that the overall death rate is going up as these numbers come in, and that's happening as cases and hospitalizations continue to go up from before from what they were, so statistically that means we have more deaths on the way, even with our treatments and outcomes being better now we may be able to keep that lower than what we saw in New York because this is not a new virus, and we have just far more resources at hand. But, statistically speaking, there's just a higher likelihood here that you're going to see more people die from this going forward. Which brings up the next point. If we don't have a vaccine to be able to stop the spread of this, what do you need to do aside from all the basic social distancing measures that we are taking? And the, the answer to that is herd immunity. We have to eventually hit herd immunity. Now, reports out of New York, say that they've had about a 20% overall population infection rate. So about one out of every five people has had it. And while that's a lot of people for this virus, that is not enough for for herd immunity. On the low end, from what I've read, you need at least around 60% of the population to have been infected and then have antibodies in order to achieve some level of herd immunity. Other studies point much higher, where you need somewhere between 70 to 90% in order to achieve that herd immunity, which means New York hasn't defeated the virus, as everyone is saying in the media right now. And also what it means is that all these other states that are also nowhere close to that, so states like Florida, Texas, even Tennessee, we know for a fact that 20% of the population here has not gotten this virus and to give us herd immunity. And so that means it's going, when you reopen, you're opening yourself up to see these spikes because so far from what we can tell, it is almost impossible to stop the spread of this. Without an X vaccine and without herd immunity, reinfection surges seem at this point to be inevitable. So that what that tells us is that Texas, Florida, California, and a lot of these other southern states, they're still seeing a first wave. This is their first true huge bout with the virus. The shutdowns previously likely helped avoid an initial wave. So this is not a second wave. This is not a second infection because you don't have that first major set of people who have gotten infected yet. Without herd immunity, without a vaccine, and with this low transmission in these early states early on, What you're seeing right now, this surge is the first wave still working its way through. Lockdowns avoided a nationwide surge where every state experienced this at once. And now everyone's getting hit outside of some of these major centers now. Now, purely from you know a a healthcare resources standpoint, that's a good thing. That is flattening the curve in in a sense. You flattened it nationwide and avoided all everyone, every state, getting it at once. And now, now what states have to do is they have to flatten their curve internally and try to make sure that they can adjust their resources to ensure that no one city or place gets swamped at once. So you don't want the healthcare system in one county getting swamped while the others are largely fine. So this is going to be a balance and sort of a dance here with the virus in many of these states. Lockdowns, though, as a tool, you can make an argument that they're absolutely needed and we need to go back into lockdown in a lot of these states. You can make that argument. But politically and economically, a lockdown is probably impossible now. It's Politically impossible, just because we're on the we're we're coming up on an election, and there's not one person in either party that wants to go back into a lockdown. Now you will hear people on social media say that they want to go back into a lockdown. That is not true. When you start polling people and you start looking at how people are reacting to the virus overall, and you also we also know that economically these many of these states just cannot take another economic hit like that. Some of them would just flat out go bankrupt if they were forced to go into another lockdown. So that's why we need masks, distancing, hand washing, and, and all the, you know, the good hygienic stuff. We need that to work and it's vitally important right now. The uptick, it started in mid-June. That's from what I can tell, that's that's where that uptick started, especially on the hospitalizations front. And now we have July 5th as the uptick point for the death rate. So now we've got to figure out how to get about and get these rates to go back down because you just you're seeing the healthcare systems beginning to get swamped by this and like the hospitalization rates, the the bed fill rate, ICU spots, all these things are going up, reflecting that more and more people are getting sick. And we've got to figure out how to handle this long term. Now I I'll just admit I do not have a solution here beyond doing the basic things that you have here, and also noting that I think lockdowns are probably politically and economically a, a just a non-option right now. So that means you, we have to use every other tool at our disposal. And I know masks are very political, volatile right now, but you need people to wear masks because you have to slow down the rate of infection here. And if it's just if a cloth mask only gives you you know a ten percent better chance against the virus. You have to have everybody wearing one in a population because that is going to reduce by that percentage amount the spread of the virus overall, which gives gives your healthcare system a better fighting chance. Every time someone wears a mask, every time someone washes their hands, stays socially distanced, every one of those individual points helps you have a better long-term chance of fighting the virus in your healthcare system overall. And the problem is right now, Like in the spring, people are no longer afraid of the virus. The fear is gone. The fear now has moved on to the measures for controlling the virus. So there is a fear of how people are trying to prevent the viral spread and not the virus itself. That is a very dangerous position to be in when you're trying to address public policy and to also address public health. And I do not envy any of our state policymakers, but this is, the, this is the hand they've been dealt, and we need them to make sure to get it right this time around, because this is definitely the first wave for a lot of these states. And once, they, once you start seeing going down in a lot of these states, it wouldn't shock me at that point if you started seeing the numbers go back up in places like New York, because a second wave is surely possible if we don't get vaccine, and we know we don't have herd immunity. So that is where we are with the virus, and we have to keep a very close watch on what's happening with those numbers overall. When we get back, we're going to hit the light item, and we'll get you out on a high point. All right, the light item for this week talks about the bright future for the Second Amendment. In May and June, gun sales set new records. In June alone, 2.3 million guns were sold, which was a 145.3% increase over June of 2019. And since March, 8.3 million firearms were sold overall, making 2020 the greatest year for gun sales in U.S. history. There are many retailers who have given interviews at national and local publications saying that they cannot keep any product or ammunition on the shelves with their shelves emptying out everywhere and in every category. So what we're seeing right now are many new gun owners who are joining the gun rights movement. The New York Times ran a piece by some black gun owners who were new to this and new to owning guns and new to carrying, and they said that they felt the need to carry now after watching all the current events. The coronavirus is increasing the number of legal gun owners, which could imply that more people are going to be protecting these rights in the future. It's not a shrinking number of advocates, but an increasing number. And as I told a friend, you can argue for defunding or abolishing the police, or you can argue for gun confiscation, but you cannot do both. And you have to remember, back during the Democratic primaries, gun confiscation for people like Beto O'Rourke was a main issue. And now we're on to defund or abolish the police. You cannot argue both of those points. You cannot tell people you're not going to have police and you, can't, you aren't allowed to defend yourself. You've got to pick one. And right now, Democrats are choosing the police, which means we now have more gun owners than just about ever before. So the of COVID-19, the coronavirus, could end up protecting the Second Amendment in ways that were unforeseen just six to eight months ago. And it could lead to a whole new and a much larger generation of gun owners interested in protecting their rights in the Second Amendment, which is a very bright future for the Second Amendment indeed. That's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information of the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at CI, look for my next columns on monday and friday at the conservative institute and the newsletter goes out early friday morning so make sure to sign up before that and you will get the next issue thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day remember if you liked and enjoyed it make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out i hope you tune in again but until then i am your host daniel vaughn signing off for this week and i will see you guys in the next episode